Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by James and Carl. They talk to Eva Galperin, the Director of Cybersecurity at EFF, about her efforts fighting against APTs, why she switched her focus from APTs to stalkerware, and how she worked with a Maryland senator to pass a bill that requires police to be trained to know how to deal with stalkerware. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. I am the director of cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, in September, I will have worked at EFF for 15 years, which is, wow. I think, uh, my second longest commitment to anything at all. Uh, so it's uh, it's kind of a milestone for me. And uh, I have worked on everything from running around the world, uh, giving uh giving trainings to people in vulnerable populations, like journalists and activists in, uh, in authoritarian countries, uh, to building our privacy and security advice uh, over at Surveillance Self-Defense, which is ssd.eff.org, uh, to building our advice for people who already have the technical ability and want to go and do security trainings, uh, which is at uh, the Security Education Companion, sec.eff.org. Uh, I've done uh, work on tracking uh, nation-state actors uh, targeting vulnerable populations. I've uh, done work on... Uh, eliminating and tracking stalkerware uh, and working on sort of protecting people in domestic abuse situations. Uh, and most recently, I've done a bunch of work on physical trackers like air tags and tiles. Oh, amazing. Huge career you've had there. <laughs> yeah. And when I was, I was um, looking at your, your career history, I wanted to ask you about uh, air tags and various other bits and pieces. So I'm, we'll get on to that later in the podcast because I think that's a really fascinating new area to explore. It's one of those things where um, security research is is sort of a, a good start, um, but then my background as, in activism was really helpful because it led me to really think about how to change the industry in order to make these things less harmful and to sort of mitigate their uh, their impact as um, tools for stalking, rather than just thinking about telling people how to protect themselves. I was going to say, before we get too far in, into the depths, why don't we just share with us how you first got into technology? Well, I blame my parents. I was a kid in Silicon Valley. My, uh, you know, my mom worked in biotech. My dad worked in tech. He was working for Sun Microsystems uh, when I was growing up. Uh, my very first connection to the internet was a shell account on uh, his Solaris machine desktop at the office that I uh, had to you know, call into using a 2400 baud modem. Uh, and so I ended up learning a lot of really uh, useful technical and systems administration skills uh, simply by being uh, left out as a feral child on the internet and told, you know, no, figure it out. I, uh, I trust you got this. Uh, and as a result, by the time I, I was ready to go to college, uh, I... I already knew my way around, you know, uh, around a shell. I already understood how networks worked, and it turned out that that was uh, really useful knowledge uh, for paying the bills. <laughs> and uh, as you went into that that college environment, I believe you didn't go straight into a computer science based degree. 
You I did actually. To, did you? Uh, I I went into a computer science based degree, and I uh, promptly discovered that it had absolutely nothing to do with the things that I already knew how to do. I uh, and I was I was a little put off, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a couple of. Uh, probably a year and a half into my computer science degree, uh, the um, I left because it didn't seem like a good use of my time to spend all of this time learning how to implement, you know, clocks in, in assembly uh, when I was, you know, had, had already figured out how to, you know, administer uh, Windows and various Linux and Unix-based systems at work, and that was what was paying for my school. Uh, so I dropped out, and what I told my parents at the time was uh, that, oh, oh, don't worry, uh, when the bubble bursts, because I have been here for a very long time and I know that tech bubbles burst, uh, I will go back to school. And I was lying, uh, <laughs> lying my head off, entirely filled with lies. Uh, little did I know that a couple years later, the bubbles, would, the bubble would burst, and nobody I knew had a job, including me. Uh, and I did go back to school, and I got a degree in political science and international relations with an emphasis in Chinese. My plan was uh, was to go to law school, and I ended up going to work for EFF, and was sort of like. I told the EFF that my plan was to go to law school, that, you know, hey, I'm just, I'm just putting law school off for a year while I figure out what to do with my life. And uh, they, they just wouldn't let me leave for 15 years. And that's how I didn't become a lawyer. <laughs> but that's how the, the paths into the EFF converged. So you've got the, mm -hmm. the political science side of things, you've got the, the technical side of things, uh, and also the languages as well. I believe it's not just Mandarin, you've, you've, learned, you've also learned Russian in the past. Oh, I, I grew up speaking Russian, uh, so I sort of got it for free, and then I got French in school. Uh, and I, I would not describe my Mandarin as functional anymore. Uh, <laughs> now my Mandarin is just embarrassing, like, like a small lobotomized child. Um, but that's just because I haven't used it in a very long time. Uh, I, I remember doing, you know, work with vulnerable populations during the Arab Spring and trying to decipher just like a, a bunch of Arabic text and yelling at the screen. I have been told that you could actually hear this from other offices at the EFF at the time. Why? Why did I learn Mandarin? <laughs> <laughs> I felt strongly that I had bet on the wrong team. Uh, and then uh, most Recently, in the last like five or six years, uh, it turned out that uh, fluent Russian was very useful uh, in a way that is actually quite horrible and I wish had not been the case. So the, the monkey's paw closed shut on why did I learn that language. <sighs> that must have, um, must have been quite tricky. I know, obviously, you've been helping out during the Ukrainian conflict, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then obviously fluent Russian helping on one side of the communication there. Um, what what sort of work well, have most, you done with the EFF with that? Most Ukrainians also speak Russian. Oh, it's true. Yeah, both sides. Sorry, I should say. Then, um, what what sort of work have you helped them with? Is it much like humanitarian aid and support? Um, a lot of it had to do with figuring out uh, best practices for communications, um, because a lot of communication in uh, in both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, takes place over Telegram, and Telegram has a lot of very serious privacy and security problems that uh, people in Russia 
and in Ukraine are not necessarily aware of. Uh, so I spent a bunch of time working on that uh, and, and hopefully had some impact. But it can be really hard to tell during a war. People, yeah, uh, yeah a, lot of, a lot of the time when you're trying to give privacy and security advice to people who are you know, being bombed or who are you know, actively fleeing a country, uh, they just they have bigger concerns right now. Uh, so I would say probably my uh, greatest impact had to do with uh, with talking to people who are doing activism inside of Russia uh, or who were trying to get out of Russia, uh, who had been doing um, independent journalism, for example, you know, the last of the independent journalists in Russia, um, nearly all of which have left and certainly none of which are currently working. Um, those, those are all people who needed privacy and security advice really badly and uh, were in less immediate danger than Ukrainians. And therefore, the advice that I could give them might actually be more helpful. And with Telegram uh, so, in, in that region, was, was the reason for the popularity of it, it just it had reached critical mass or were people assuming that it was secure for a particular A combination reason? of the two. It's very widely used, and Telegram markets, markets itself as the you know secure messenger, which is ridiculous because there's really only one form of communication over Telegram that's even end to end encrypted. And I believe it's not by default either. You've got to no, it is not. Enable. Only one-on-one -on -one conversations, specifically with uh, I think secret chat or secret messages uh, turned on. Everything else, not even end to end encrypted. You don't even have the kind of protection you have using WhatsApp. Gosh. That's uh, that's crazy. So thinking about kind of your wider work then as well with with EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, can you tell me a bit more about what EFF does and, and kind of the role you play there? Sure. Uh, EFF is a digital civil liberties organization. Uh, our, our mission is to make sure that when you go online, your rights come with you. Uh, and uh, to that end, we have sort of uh, three different kinds of people who work for us uh, that enable us to do a, a really wide variety of impactful work. Uh, we have an army of angry American attack lawyers, and they file... Uh, what we call impact litigation. So uh, sort of strategic lawsuits that we think are either going to help us take down bad precedent or to create good precedent in the law. Uh, we have a small army of activists uh, everywhere around the world, not just in the U.S., uh, where we do, uh, we do some lobbying, we do grassroots activism, we work with organizations on the ground all the time, we provide security and privacy advice, also policy advice. Uh, EFF has been around since 1990. Uh, we are uh, not as old as the Internet, but as old as the web, and old enough to know the difference. And um, one of the, the things, one of the big problems that we have seen with uh, people who try to regulate the internet or technology or you know, any kind of uh, you know, digital space or, uh, or personal data is that it's frequently being regulated by people who don't understand how it works uh, or people who have not seen years of policy battles around this stuff. And they think that they can do things like, you know, oh, just, uh, you know, just break end-to-end -end encryption so that we can stop terrorists. Or just break end-to-end -end encryption so that we can stop 
uh, child porn. Uh, surely, if we do that, it will not break end-to-end -end encryption for everything else. I mean, these people are really bad. And if you don't want to undermine everyone's privacy and security uh, over everything forever, then uh, why do you love terrorists and pedophiles so much? Uh, we've, yeah, we've had this argument a million times, and we are extremely well-prepared and well-armed to fight the, the crypto wars. Uh, and that sort of stuff really helps. And then uh, we also have an army of engineers. Uh, so people who, who do purely technical work. I, for example, have done a bunch of research on nation-state malware. Uh, I work with people who worked on uh, Let's Encrypt. So if you have ever gotten a, you know, a, a free one-click SSL certificate for your website, you're welcome. Uh, that's the sort of thing that we work on. If you have ever uh, downloaded uh, Privacy Badger to you know, eat cookies on your website, or if you used um, HTTPS everywhere back in the day, before HTTPS actually was everywhere, uh, to make sure that you were using the HTTPS version of a site. Uh, so we did a lot of work to, uh, to encrypt the web, and we do sort of this combination of uh, technical research and, and building tools that we think are useful and that can really have a, a big long-term impact on the way that we use the internet. So one of the things that I'm most familiar with you for is the initial APT research and looking into threats around the world. And I think it's it's really interesting how, you know, you've been focusing on vulnerable communities and as you've explored that area, you've found more and more vulnerable communities because you've sort of shifted from the, the nation state attacks on journalists and oppressive regimes. And you've now also swung around and covered the sort of less sophisticated threats, but equally dangerous of the more consumer tools that are out there for tracking and monitoring communications in the form of stalkerware. So would you like just to talk about that journey and how you, you went from APTs into that area? So people frequently ask me, you know, why, why did you switch communities? Why did, why did you go from tracking APTs to, uh, to you know, sort of tracking the spread of stalkerware? Uh, and I think that this is actually the wrong question because uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't change communities. I didn't change anything. This is actually all uh, sort of pulling the thread of the same problem. Uh, when I started doing research on APTs and publishing it, there was not a robust ecosystem of people tracking APTs that were not very sophisticated. Most of the published work on, uh, on APTs tracked uh, Five Eyes, Russia, uh, Israel, and, uh, and China. And there were a couple of different reasons for this, but primarily the reason for it was that they were sophisticated and interesting. And so if you take a look at the Mandiant report, you know, the very first APT report, APT1, uh, it was all about how China had spent several years uh, trying to get into the New York Times in order to unmask the sources behind a series of stories about government corruption. Uh, and what was uh, novel at the time, and this was like 2013, so the dinosaur were roaming the earth. Um, what was novel about uh, Mandiant's report at the time was that they were talking about people who were not sort of, you know, fly-by-night criminals. You couldn't deter them by just being more secure than the guy next door and then waiting for, for the, you know, the government, the Chinese government to, you know, break into the Washington Post instead of the New York Times. Uh, these were people whose job it was to get up and starting at 8 o'clock in the morning, they would start sending phishing emails and they would start knocking on your network. Uh, 
and you cannot deter them <laughs> by uh, you know by most of the means that we were we were thinking of as effective at the time. Uh, the kind of APTs that I was studying uh, were very persistent, but they were not sophisticated. And so they didn't get a lot of coverage precisely because the kind of people who wrote reports um, about APTs were writing them in order to demonstrate that they understood sophisticated and powerful actors. This was both sort of a, you know, a flex by, uh, by researchers. Why do research on boring research? Uh, why, why publish uh, stuff about, like, some boring fishing? Um, but also it was a sign of, uh, of the ways in which uh, research in private industry was really focused on being sort of advertising for the company that you were working for. The other reason that you publish research is in order to demonstrate that this company has such badass researchers that are able to find such incredible malware that we too can protect you from these spooky, spooky threads. And what falls through the cracks there are, uh, you know, extremely primitive phishing campaigns against, uh, you know, at the time, uh, anti-Assad, you know, sort of uh, activists in Syria and um, human rights uh, workers in uh, Vietnam and uh, activists in Ethiopia and in uh, Kazakhstan. And so I spent several years just tracking those. And frequently the, uh, the work itself was not very technically sophisticated, but it was very effective. They were definitely owning a lot of activists this way. And so it was really important to get the word out. Uh, and when I sort of started doing less nation-state malware work and more work on uh, sort of domestic abuse situations, it, uh, it came out of two things. The first was that um, the research landscape really changed. Uh, over the last several years, and part of this is because the, the APT landscape changed, changed a lot. Um, on one hand, uh, we, we saw the APTs move into mobile really quickly. Uh, we've also seen a much wider variety of APTs, uh, and they started buying from these sort of turnkey solution uh, companies. Uh, first FinFisher, then Hacking Team, now more no notoriously NSO Group, and... Um, what started happening was that the people who wanted to track sophisticated actors uh, became much more interested in this, and there was a lot more. Uh, there are a lot more eyes on the problem. Once there are a lot more eyes on the problem, I start looking for another problem. Uh, I I really enjoy focusing my work on uh, on looking where no one else is looking, and I felt like this was a space that had been you know pretty well staked out, and now a lot of security researchers were interested in it, and like why. Why do I need to do more research that somebody else is going to do if I don't do it? Mm. Uh, so I started looking at stalkerware. And uh, one of the reasons for that was that uh, one of the guys with whom I had been doing my APT research uh, turned out to be a uh, serial rapist. And there was an interview with uh, one of his survivors, was a punk girl in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, I think it was in, I think it's in Vice. Uh, and 
I read the interview, and the interview really emphasized both with her and with the other people who spoke out about his behavior and emphasized how terrified they were. They were really, really scared of this guy um, because allegedly he had threatened to hack into all of their uh, all of their machines. So they were worried about their phones. They were worried about their computers. They were worried about their accounts. Uh, and I just I didn't want anybody to ever be that scared again. I was really very deeply and personally offended by this fear, and I spent the next several years doing what I could to mitigate it. Is that, um, is that the story that inspired you with your quite viral tweet now? Um, if you're a woman who's been sexually abused by a hacker who threatened to compromise your devices, reach out to you and, and you'll take a look at them. Yes. Uh, and after that, I had people reaching out to me for the next uh, three years, <laughs> as many wow. as like 30 people a day. I, I couldn't keep track of it all the time. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why I helped to found the Coalition Against Stalkerware uh, and why I spent a lot of time working on uh, sort of a, a, a more... Um, strategic solution to the problem, because uh, personally helping every person who is worried about their device in a domestic abuse situation, uh, it doesn't scale. Uh, no. there's, there is only one me, and I am very tired. So I decided that what I would do was uh, I would change research, I would change user interface, I would change policies, uh, and I would uh, I would work with the AV industry to make sure that we had better um, uh, that we had better detection for uh, for stalkerware and that people stayed on top of it, uh, and and that has proven to be remarkably effective. We've, we've made uh, some very serious inroads in this area. I'm not quite ready to throw my hands up in the air and declare stalkerware dead, uh, but it's, uh, it's limping a bit. Uh, and you, uh, as a result, I get to, now I get to worry about other things like physical trackers. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, actually, do, do you think where we are with the tech industry now, you can see a future where their self-regulation will be sufficient? Or is this a problem that's going to continue existing with quite a long tail? Ha ha ha, no. The problem is not one of those things that you can divide up into uh, you know, self-regulation and government regulation. Uh, the problem is that there are actually a lot of actors involved in the space, and, you know, the people who make stalkerware, but also the people who are you know, running the various stores, uh, the people who are uh, you know, selling them uh, you know, server space and time, uh, the people who are making uh, apps that help to detect these things, the people who make the operating systems, which can sometimes be used to detect these things. So there, there are a lot of actors in the space, and uh, some of them are extremely on top of it, and some of them are not. And then some of them are just outright motivated uh, to, to make things as, as bad as possible. For example, the stalkerware companies. Uh, one of the interesting things about stalkerware companies is that often the products are, uh, in addition to doing very bad things uh, for, the, for the people who have these things surreptitiously installed on their, um, on their devices, they're often extremely poor quality. They're sort of slapdash put together. And so there's actually a lot of really interesting security research uh, done in which uh, they've just completely left CNCs open or they've left their entire infrastructure open for anybody to see. Uh, and that's one of those cases where I turn to the FTC uh, because that is uh, that is extremely unsafe. 
And uh, I've been able to get the FTC to go after a couple of companies for not just for making stalkerware, but for just making crappy stalkerware that's not very <laughs> secure for anybody. <laughs> and on the, the international stage of these things, I know some of the things I've read in the past, um, you know, countries with less economic resources, they often get given phone, cheap phones and SIM cards for free if they use Facebook access and they'll often trade data for those. Do you think, you know, in the West we get a new iPhone and it has all these security settings, do you think the, the problem is exaggerated, you know, depending on how vulnerable people are economically and socially? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Apple has actually done a really good job of making it very difficult to install stalkerware. Uh, on an iPhone that has not been jailbroken. And they've made it pretty difficult to remotely jailbreak an iPhone. Um, on the other hand, the attackers that we're looking at usually have physical access. Uh, and also, the advantage that Apple has over Android is that they have this sort of walled garden that allows them the level of control that they need in order to block uh, access for stalkerware apps. Um, in addition to being a privacy and security activist, I'm, you know, I'm also a researcher, and I believe that if you bought it, you own it, and you have a right to tinker, and you have a right to take things apart, uh, which is why the Android ecosystem is so important. But the Android ecosystem is also less secure, uh, mm -hmm. because it is not controlled in a single place. There's not just one throat to choke. Uh, and as a result, there are some versions of Android that are very secure, and there are some versions of Android that are a trash fire. Uh, and trying to control all of them in one place is simply impossible. So uh, working on the sort of proliferation of stalkerware in, uh, you know, in the Android ecosystem is in many ways an, uh, an uphill battle. Uh, but I think it's very much one worth fighting because the people who are more likely to have insecure Androids are people with, uh, with less money or people who are in the global south. And uh, I am not interested in just providing privacy and security to, you know, rich white people in America. Absolutely. It's that exploitation of the, you know, people's private data, whether it's stalkerware, whether it's just general access to their data, and also the, you know, the political influence we've seen played out in some of those countries where people have been given budget phones and free SIM cards, but they have to go through the, the social media that then, you know, maybe presents a certain view of the world to them, um, which has a, a big impact on the country. Absolutely. So just twisting from the, the piece where, we, you know, you mentioned Apple there, and I know you did some fantastic work with lobbying um, Kaspersky and Android and Apple to put in better controls to make sure that they're alerting to people by things by default. But then you've mentioned the AirTags at the, the start of the conversation, which is where we kind of going to things that are presented as, as good things to have. Um, and my interest in this is I recently engaged with it because I just ignored them as key ring things that were a novelty. And then I was thought, well, what use are these? And I went to look for them on eBay and I found some, most of the sellers were selling things that were silenced or to, things for how you stop it beeping and alerting someone to its presence. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your, your research in that area. So when Apple first came out with the AirTag, it was even worse than it is now. Uh, it's actually the they had a few anti-stalking mitigations, including a beep that would start when the AirTag would be uh, out of uh, Bluetooth range of the device that it was paired to for three days. 
which means that you get three free days of stalking before, even before you get a beep. The beep was about 60 decibels, which is uh, about as loud as your dishwasher. Uh, It was extremely easy to stifle. Um, And you would get an alert on your phone, for example, uh, if you had an iPhone. (laughs) If you had an Apple device, it would alert you if there was uh, an AirTag traveling with you, which is uh, one of the most common ways that that stalking works, that there, there is a Bluetooth device that is going places with you that is not paired to your device. So that's... um, that's a, a pretty easy giveaway. Um, but if you have the gall to exist outside of the Apple ecosystem, uh, you heretic, uh, then you would not get this alert because there, there was no equivalent alert for, uh, for the Android. So I got Apple to shorten the, uh, you know, your, your free stocking time to 24 hours. Uh, and one of the reasons for that was that uh, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't get it to zero, uh, and and part of that is because uh, people do spend time around each other, and go places together, and we just ran the risk of having alerts going off all the time. And when alerts go off all the time, as you well know, uh, people start ignoring alerts. So we decided, you know, twenty four hours, good way to go. Uh, and uh, I also got them to build an Android app which, incidentally, not an easy thing to convince Apple to do. Uh, so Apple has an Android app that you can download onto your Android that will allow you to run a scan to see whether or not there is an AirTag uh, that is not paired to your device in your vicinity. Um, it is not the same level of uh, you know, uh, functionality as you get if you have an iPhone. Uh, and I think that that is, uh, is really disappointing. Uh, but that's also just a function of how the Android app, uh, ecosystem works, uh, which is to say that uh, Apple cannot build this functionality into every Android OS. They, uh, they control zero Android OSs. Um, and also, the, um, you have to actually run the scan. You have to know about the app, you have to download the app, and then you have to run a scan every time, as opposed to in iOS where it just sort of happens in the in the background. And part of that has to do with uh, the way that Android limits the kind of functionality that you can have running in the background all the time. And what Apple decided, uh, and in this particular case I agree with them, was rather than just having it run in the background some of the time and then not running in the background other times, thus giving people a false sense of security, that they would require people to do a proactive scan every time. Uh, it was just one of those situations where there's, there, are, uh, there are no good options that would get you parity with what is happening in iOS. So what I have suggested is that all of the makers of, uh, of physical trackers should get together and agree on a standard uh, that they would then publish which would allow the makers of all of the different operating systems to build uh, tracking device detection into the OS, uh, you know, in the background, done correctly from day one, and not just for um, not just for AirTags, but for every kind of physical tracker that is out there. And I think that is uh, that's a longer fight. 
That's not one of those things that you can really get to happen overnight. Um, but I think that that is our best long-term solution for the proliferation of physical trackers. And you mentioned there as well, not just not just Apple AirTags. Now, I know that there's a lot of DIY tags that can be created. Um, I recently saw a bike company putting a tracker into their bike lights. Yeah, how, how big is the proliferation of these devices? How, what sort of roadmap do you feel that's going to have over the next few years? I mean, Tile has been around for a really long time, and so has Chipolo. I think uh, Samsung has a, uh, has a physical tracker. And they are, you know, they're not new. Um, but what the AirTag did that these other physical trackers did not do was that it essentially deputized the entire network of, um, of iOS devices uh, running Bluetooth and FindMy uh, to become the network that it talks to in order to report its location. So if you have a tile, uh, your tile communicates uh, only with uh, devices that have the tile app installed on them. So in many in many places, you can go all day without running into somebody else who has the the, the tile app installed on their on their phone or on their computer without getting into Bluetooth range. Uh, mm -hmm. But I dare you to make it through the day without getting into Bluetooth range of a person with an Apple device. That's just not happening, and especially yeah. in cities. Uh, or or in suburbs, the chances that you you have just created a much more accurate and robust network um, of uh, of tracking than has ever existed before, and because the the network is so much more powerful, I felt it was that much more important to hold Apple to account uh, for having um, debuted it in such an irresponsible way. Uh, that really just did not take uh, the stocking concerns into account uh, at all, and especially not uh, for people who exist outside of the Apple ecosystem. Uh, they've done a pretty good job of responding. Uh, and, of course, you would think uh, that in response to all of this, the makers of other physical trackers would be like, ah, if we see the error of our ways, we will stop making <laughs> physical trackers. No. Uh, their response has been, hmm, we need bigger networks. Uh, and so uh, Tile was bought by uh, Life360. Um, they were talking about entering into an agreement with Amazon to turn every Amazon Echo into part of their network. Um, all, of, all of the companies are looking for ways to expand their network. So they, they all want to turn their products into, uh, into products with these vast networks that can compete with AirTags. And I can't talk them out of it. And so the my best bet is to, uh, if you're going to make your tool more powerful, uh, also make it trackable. Also make it transparent. Um, and uh, let's do it in a way that runs in the background by default on people's uh, devices at the OS level. Uh, so that you don't need to download an app and run a scan for every single different type of physical device that there is out there, because that is a hellscape. Uh, Tile did put out an app uh, for um, uh, for detecting tiles around you, uh, and I think that they they've added it as functionality to the Tile app, uh, and that's great. 
but uh, a solution in which uh, everybody who works in this in this field has to download every app and then run a scan for every different kind of physical device is just dumb. It comes back to your question of scale and so something as well. You know, thinking through that training, right? You know, it's probably fairly straightforward for IT literate people to understand, download an app, and and run it. Um, certainly, seen recently um, your your support for the bill passed in Maryland. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what that was? Sure. Uh, so uh, a year or two ago, I was approached by State Senator uh, Barbara Lee in uh, in Maryland, and uh, she had she had seen my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think probably the douchiest thing I've ever said. Uh, and, and she essentially just said, you know, so how can I help? What, what can I do that would, that would be helpful in, in this area? And I told her that one of the problems that I kept seeing was that uh, survivors of domestic abuse who had been, uh, who had been stalked, who had had stalkerware installed on their phones or on their computers would then uh, come to the local police and they would say, you know, help, I, I am being stalked. Uh, I am, you know, I'm being tracked. Here is the evidence that I am being tracked. You can see it on my phone. You can see it on my computer. And uh, frequently what would happen was that uh, it was a crapshoot. How, uh, how technically sophisticated is the police officer that you are talking to right now? Is what decides whether or not any, uh, whether or not you get passed off to uh, to someone who will then ignore you, or essentially gaslit and told that this is not a problem and you're crazy. Um, there were there were all kinds of very serious problems for people who uh, were trying to get help, and uh, so I proposed that we should train police in the academy. Uh, you know, while while they're learning all the other things about policing, um, about what digital stalking looks like, uh, everything from physical trackers to um, uh, to stalkerware because it's uh, it's not very technically sophisticated. It's not difficult to detect, uh, and you do not need to be a you know computer forensic specialist uh, in order to see like hey I ran an AV scan and it detected uh, you know mobile spy. Uh, that's that's pretty brain dead, uh, and they they need to know both how to do this, uh, how to recognize it, and uh, what the next steps are that they can take so that they can stop gaslighting people and start helping them. Uh, so uh, this bill passed this year. Uh, the training is uh, still being sort of put together and written, uh, but next year we should see it implemented. And then after that, I will do some measurement to see whether or not it's actually improved uh, the the way that people who are you know concerned about digital stalking are treated when when they go to the police, uh, if it turns out that this is helpful, which is again a very a very slow process with science, it's really tempting to just go ah we'll use this as a model bill cool we got it <laughs> we got it through let's let's implement it everywhere but I really want to take the time to make sure that uh, that this is an effective. Um, way of, of dealing with the problem before I roll this out as a model bill to other states uh, and uh, potentially to, uh, to other countries. Um, my hope is that my instincts are correct and this will be successful and then I will just run around uh, pushing it on, uh, on other law enforcement and anybody else who will listen. But right now, I just don't know yet. 
I'm going to go find out. I mean, it's admirable effort and, uh, you know, we really wish you all the best with it because it's one of those cases where the technology has far outpaced the laws, the, the knowledge of law enforcement and the knowledge of, of the general community, right? That one of the things my wife works in in schools and they now have to educate children on, you know, sending indecent images to each other, but also on, you know, abusive relationships and controlling access to devices and things like that, which I think there's a lot of people who who still don't realise how prevalent this is. I know reading your blog that I was really surprised that there was the survey you quoted there of 10,000 adults across 10 countries and one in 10 respondents had been in a romantic relationship and that they'd admitted to using a stalkerware app at some point to monitor a current or former partner, their device activity, their locations, those kind of things. So the, the prevalence of this is, you know, astronomical really in, in across across the globe by the sound of it. So where do you think we, we should fall in general societal education? You know, we obviously need the law enforcement people to know about it, but if people know about this up front, do you think that will help? I think it's not enough to educate people and, and tell them, you know, stalkerware exists. Um, I think what's more important is that people recognize the dynamics of abuse. Uh, one of the big problems that we have uh, uh, is is also sort of uh, outlined in this uh, in, in the particular survey that you just quoted. Uh, not only did a, about one in ten people admit that they had uh, you know, covertly spied on their partners' uh, digital devices, um, but um, even more people agreed that it was justified to spy on their partner's digital devices if they thought that their partner was cheating. That, you know, if if that jerk is cheating, then I, I should be able to, to essentially stalk them in order to prove that. Um, and that's, that's abuse. That's abuse. Uh, and one of the big problems that we have, you know, sort of as hackers, as information professionals, is um, we're used to the idea that we have root. That we have all the power, and of course, we can be trusted with the power. We're the people who find bad guys. Therefore, we are good guys. Uh, and um, we don't treat having you know, full access to somebody's device as necessarily abusive. And I think that that's something that we really need to stop. And the, um, the key here is, is not even full access, like most of us would not be able to do our jobs if we did not have access to people's devices, uh, but it is consent. Uh, if you have to fool someone into thinking that you are you know, not uh, spying on their device, uh, or you have, to, you have to fool them into thinking that you're not tracking them, what you are doing is abusive. Uh, you, have, you have already lost the moral argument, and uh, we need to be calling each other out on that stuff when we see it. Uh, instead of just going, oh yeah, catch that bitch cheating. That, um, that touches on something quite close to my heart as well. You mentioned consent. I just wondered if for our listeners you could share your thoughts on consented marketing data. I know certainly from my point of view, it's uh, it's an interesting field, interesting topic that, you know, use our app for free and we're going to just collect some things in the background, don't worry about it. What What's kind of your take on that? And do you think that's going to evolve into... You know, a data pool for cyber stalkers and a bit of a paradise for them. Well, uh, in some ways, there is already a vast and unregulated market of uh, of location data, uh, and there's been a lot of really interesting work done about uh, location data and the location data of uh, people's mobile phones, uh, which you can purchase. 
You don't even have to be, you know, a government or law enforcement. You don't have to show up with a subpoena or a warrant. You just have to show up with 160 bucks, and there's a company that will tell you, you know, who's been going to Planned Parenthood. Um, though apparently they stopped that because, uh, oh God, one of the uh, one of the motherboard uh, journalists wrote a story about it. Motherboard is really great. Um, so yeah, we're, we've seen we're seeing this sort of vast unregulated uh, trade in location data, and location data is incredibly sensitive. It is, in fact, the you know what stalking is all about is <laughs> finding out people's locations. And frequently, what these companies will tell you is, oh, but this user data has been anonymized. Uh, you know, we've lumped it all together. Surely no one can tease it apart. Um, but it's really easy to draw conclusions. Um, about who someone is based on their location data. Because, uh, I mean, sure, you're going to the Planned Parenthood, but if I want to figure out where you live, just tell me where, you know, where are you at two in the morning? Mm -hmm. where, where are you sleeping overnight? Wherever it is that you're going during the day between nine to five, I bet that's where you work. I, and so you can draw a lot of, of conclusions about who a person is just based on, on where they are located. And that is data right now that is not very well protected. Uh, there are two things that EFF is trying to do right now. One of them is uh, we are calling for uh, a ban on uh, sort of um, the, the very basis of surveillance capitalism, this sort of you know, targeted, uh, targeted advertising. Um, that, that spends all of this time trying to figure out who you are and that tracks you across the web and uh, that shows you ads based on, uh, on this information and where they sell this information to, uh, to other companies, again, so they can target you with ads. So we want to ban this sort of targeted advertising. Um, and uh, the other thing is we want more regulation of uh, what you can and cannot do uh, with uh, people's location data. Um, because the location data uh, ecosystem is essentially the Wild West right now. And part of the reason for that is actually U.S. law. Thank you, U.S. law. Uh, and that is because the contents of your communications um, are actually pretty strongly protected under the, under the Fourth Amendment. Um, but uh, your location data is metadata. It is not the contents of communications. It's not a communication in and of itself. And because of that, it's, uh, the protections for it are actually much weaker. I think in the EU, we've certainly seen the, the very interesting side effect of the, you know, the cookie legislation that was brought in for, for tracking using cookies and consenting to that, leading to then a huge rise in IP-based tracking and device-based tracking because they needed ways to identify individuals and track their, their browsing habits and shopping habits and target them with adverts which has then led to all these unintended consequences. Absolutely. So, and a, a lot of the people who are, a, a lot of the, the more sort of unsophisticated view of this is just like, oh, just get people, get people to consent to sharing their information. You, you show them a long you know, terms of service or consent form and you say, well, you have to click through in order to use my thing. Oh, you agreed to it. Ha ha. Uh, and that's not really consent. <laughs> Like a long, unreadable, incomprehensible form written by lawyers uh, that doesn't actually, like, that is read by no one, that is clicked so that it, the screen gets out of the way. Uh, that, is, that is not informed consent. Uh, and then the, the sort of the other policy solution uh, is often, well, just people control their own data. Like, 
oh, I have news for you <laughs> about <laughs> data. <laughs> what is your data? Uh, if you enter somebody else's uh, phone number into your phone, into your contacts list, is that your data or their data? Uh, if you take a picture of someone, you post to the internet, you tag them, is that your data or their data? Uh, and so the, the, you, it starts with, from, this, from a, a place of, uh, from a very well-meaning place of just, just let everybody control their own data and everything will be fine. Uh, but the implementation is actually extremely complicated. <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> I had a few questions to really kind of help our listeners uh, for f before we kind of wrap things up as well. Um, I was wondering if you could share how our listeners can help out in the fight against stalkerware and domestic abuse. Well, there are a couple of different things that you can do. Uh, the first thing that you can do, and I'm obliged to say this, uh, is uh, you can become a member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We are a membership-funded organization. Uh, if uh, you go to www.eff.org, uh, we have members all over the world. Uh, I think we have about 40,000 of them right now. Uh, and uh, if you send us a little bit of money, we will send you stickers and T-shirts. So many T-shirts, so many stickers. And uh, I have a strong understanding of, uh, of the hacker community, and I understand that we are motivated largely by stickers and t-shirts. <laughs> nothing we will not do for stickers and t-shirts. Um, if you are interested in doing work uh, directly on the ground with uh, sort of uh, people who are being targeted for this kind of abuse, there are a couple of different organizations that you can go to. Uh, one of them is uh, CETA, S-E-T-A. Uh, the Center for Electronic T Technology and Abuse, uh, which is uh, based, I think, out of Cornell. Uh, there is also Operation Safe Escape, uh, which is uh, based out of D.C. Uh, and there are a couple of organizations in, uh, in Europe. Uh, in fact, if, if you are in the U.K., I recommend Refuge U.K. I thought they had um, a really, really good what to do if you break up with someone. Yes, uh, they just Fantastic resource. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, for, for our listeners, if you've not seen that, it's kind of a step-by-step -step when, you, when you end a relationship, how to make sure you can you know, secure and, and look after your data and remove it from some of the devices that you've potentially shared. So shout out to, uh, shout out to them as well. One um, of the other things that I have been doing is uh, sort of lobbying the uh, you know, makers of IoT devices and you know all kinds of home assistants uh, to make it easier for people to uh, know who uh, who is seeing what data and also to lock somebody out uh, definitively and easily uh, when a relationship ends. Uh, I think that a lot of uh, a lot of the devices that we're seeing sort of proliferate throughout people's homes right now, most of the smart devices are are built on the assumption that there is uh, that it's being used by a nuclear family uh, in which one person is the administrator who understands how tech works and then everybody else is uh, sort of a a peon uh, and that the family <laughs> never changes. I uh, and the your trust model never changes, and that's that's simply not how the majority of households work. <laughs> you I need to be also... able to break up with your partner and lock them out. You need to be able to have a roommate move out and know that they're not going to be controlling your lights next week or your locks. Um, 
And that's not something that these devices are particularly well equipped to do. Uh, and it's not like they can't add this functionality. It is that they they really started from a very uh, naive view of how households work and uh, treated everything that was not this sort of nuclear family model that never changes of the household uh, as an edge case, mm. which I think is a, a really big problem. There's a naivety within the consumer as well, potentially, that, oh, it's just a thermostat. Well, the thermostat now has a presence sensor in there. It can monitor what room you're in. It can monitor who's connected to the network to control it. And so there's all these pieces of information that people think, well, it's just a thermostat. Well, actually, it can reveal huge amounts of information. Absolutely. Though I do find it yeah. less useful to try to do uh, kind of consumer uh, education because in the end, this just ends up scaring their pants off and it scares them so much that they don't do anything. Uh, it, is, uh, it is really common among uh, information security professionals to believe that the way to educate people is to scare the shit out of them. Uh, and that's simply not true. Uh, if you are going to scare people, you have to follow it out with some sort of empowerment. Uh, and you can't leave it up to every ordinary person to become an information security professional in order to uh, have perfectly ordinary tools in their house. Uh, and leaving it up to the users, I think, is uh, it is cruel and unfair. Uh, and so what we need to do is we need to change the industries. We need to change the products uh, instead of just uh, yelling at users for not being smart enough. Absolutely, yeah. yeah and it's that, that transparency issue. It leads nicely into our, uh, our last couple of questions as well. So... What what would you do differently now if you could step back in time? You know, you go back here you know, twenty years and say, "Let's make some real change that's going to impact the world." What would that be? <sighs> oh man, I would have encrypted the web from day one. Uh, I would have implemented end-to-end uh, -end encryption for communications from day one. Um, <sighs> we're going back twenty years, so I can't stop email from happening. <laughs> I think we'd all appreciate that on yes. some days. <laughs> <laughs> Email was a terrible idea for a variety of reasons. Um, and I, I would really um, have, have talked to the people who are making these, uh, these products from the very beginning about uh, focusing and, and centering the needs of vulnerable populations instead of just imagining the people who are just like them uh, who are going to be using their products uh, and starting with that from day one. Um, I, I used to get pushback on things as simple as like, hey, perhaps people might not want to use their real names on Facebook for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, there are journalists and activists and actors and people you know, who are being stalked. And uh, one of the very first things that, that I heard back from companies back in the day was essentially, uh, oh, those are edge cases. Like those edge cases make up more than 50% of your users. <laughs> Jeez, I, I think I read in the um, European Parliament uh, kind of bill that they've submitted or draft bill they've submitted that the the estimated cost is forty nine to eighty nine billion euros. So yeah, it's not it's not an edge case um, for cyber harassment and cyber stalking. Absolutely. So it's not a it's not an edge case when it's at those sort of numbers. Yeah. I think that's a very defensible position. And I do think that when uh, when you're building a social media platform, or indeed if you are building a platform that allows users to talk to one another under any circumstances, your very first thought should be how is this going to be used to harass people? 
Uh, and often uh, anti-harassment mitigations are sort of tacked on uh, after the product has been debuted and then harassment happens. Um, because the people who raise the red flags about harassment in advance are essentially uh, being, being told that, uh, oh, you're just creating problems that don't exist. You're you're just you know you're you're just making more work for us. The harms haven't actually happened. You're just these are imaginary harms, uh, and this is one of the things that I heard uh, back when um, when the Apple AirTag came out. Uh, people were like, "Why are you so worried about stalking? Nobody's been stalked yet." I'm like, "It's been five minutes." <laughs> You are standing on the edge of the cliff. You are about to walk off of the cliff, and I am a cliff specialist telling you that gravity exists. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, thousands and thousands of people were, in fact, uh, finding uh, finding air tags that had been uh, placed by people who were uh, who were stalking them. And there's just been an endless number of uh, of media stories written about these things. Uh, who could have possibly seen it coming, aside from everyone? I think that rounds us into kind of our final question for you. Is there anything else we, we didn't cover that you want to get out to the world here? I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is, uh, again, that uh, protecting uh, journalists and activists from spying by governments and then protecting people in uh, domestic abuse situations. And notice that I don't frame this as just a women's issue. Men also get stalked. Non-binary people get stalked. All kind, you know, all genders are, uh, you know, subject to abuse. Everyone can end up in an abusive relationship. Uh, it is not just uh, a, a world in which men abuse women. Uh, and uh, that the, this is actually all part of the same problem, that, this, that the problem is really uh, authoritarianism, the authoritarian impulse to, uh, to spy on people in order to control them. Uh, and uh, government spying without your consent is just authoritarianism writ large and abusive relationships in which a person is spying on their you know on their spouse's phone in order to catch them uh, cheating is just authoritarianism written small uh, and uh, i i hate all of it it's been absolutely incredible to hear from you and have all these stories shared i've, I've really really enjoyed this episode so Thank you so much for, for letting our listeners know about all of these challenges, all of the changes that you'd like to see, and hopefully this can motivate quite a few people to, to step up for change as well and look forward to, to seeing more people involved with EFF. So again, thank you, Eva, so much for your time today. Um, it's been incredible. James, anything from you? No, just thank you very much, Eva, for sharing your stories with us today, and thank you to you and your colleagues at the EFF for all the, the work you do to... Uh, help everyone around the world with these issues. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.